Welcome to Sparkplug, where we talk to smart people working at the intersection of business and technology. Brought to you by Snowshoe, making mobile locations smarter. Welcome to part two of our two-part interview with Trevor Sumner, CEO of Perch. I'm curious, what kind of surprising successes have you seen? What things surprised you that, that you didn't expect to see that were really, you know, knock the charts off? Like, hey, that worked. I didn't expect that to work. I think one of the most, I, I think, pleasing intellectually to me is the value of the data. And I think we, we've hung our hat on the sales lift concept and we sell into sales teams. But fundamentally, Perch is shining a light into the black box of physical retail in ways that are providing surprising insights. So I'll give you an example. So the way the products are organized on the shelf is called a planogram. It's just a diagram of product A goes here, product B goes here, et cetera. And on an end cap, if you ask any retailer or brand, what is the most valuable space on the planogram? Where do you want to put your best product? They'll, they'll, they'll say eye level or they'll say eye level is buy level. Like every time, 99.9% of the time. And here's the thing. with Now that we're actually looking at it, Turns out it's not the best place. Really? And, and this is this is like decades and decades of 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 of, of you know biblical level understanding that like this is the one rule that we must abide by. And oh by the way, you know, yes, eye level is good because you get about 25% more engagement. But the edges of an end cap are better. And you get about you know 35 to 50% more engagement. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We showed this to one of our clients in the pet space and they said, that can't be right. It just can't be right. <laughs> that would overturn decades and, and an organization of literally tens of thousands of people who all agree on this thing. And we're like, okay, well, let's, when we do the next product refresh, we'll measure it again. And sure enough, the edges came out on top again. And so they said, wait, a, and, and you actually can, like, you, you can actually see this now. now. Now that, like, you kind of open your eyes to the fact, like, next time you're in a shopping cart and you're going past an end cap, like the, ed, the end of uh, an aisle, you'll see, like, the products on the edges you can read, but then once you go to two or three products in, it all kind of blurs together. And so all of a sudden you see that the edges do stand out. It's like an optical illusion kind of thing. And and so all of a sudden this pet company is like, oh my God, we've got to rethink about how we put products on the shelf everywhere, not just perch stores, but non-perch stores. And so, you know, it's been really fascinating to see the data insights that are changing behavior. So I'll give you another example. Um, Johnson & Johnson um, is marketing their beauty products with Perch at in, in grocery. Uh, and you know they had Jennifer Aniston for Vino and Kerry Washington for Neutrogena. And they said, well, we've got this clean and clear launch. It's a new launch. And we don't have a spokesperson. Perch, can you tell us how much that hurts us to have to use Instagram influencers instead of Kerry Washington and Jennifer Aniston? Any guess what percentage... How, how does that how does that hurt your sales lift? What would you guess, Ashley? Dead? I bet you it's a one percent change, if that. Okay, one percent change. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I guide this in my conversations. Ashley, what's your guess? Ten percent. It's always a trick question with me. So the answer <laughs> is, it actually increases digital engagement by twenty percent to have Instagram influencers, wow. and increases sales by about ten percent. Wow! And, so it's the yeah, opposite. I mean, it's the opposite, right? And the reality is it's actually probably different by demographic, right? Mm -hmm. Like an old man like me, Gen Z, Gen X rather, male, probably prefers Jennifer Aniston or Kerry Washington. But, you know, 
Gen Z is going to want Instagram influencers. And so, you know, where we're going long term is to be able to segment the message by demographic and by which product you're touching. And also to use this real time data so that you can A B test it, right? So we'll do Jennifer Aniston versus Instagram influencer and see what actually changes behavior at the shelf. And based upon that, you know, kind of like optimizely online or some of these multivariate testing suites, like, We'll just print out a report. You, you give us a, you know, a data dump of, of various different media and creative and we'll say, okay, Jennifer Aniston works for Gen X women. Kerry Washington works for Gen Z men. Instagram influencers work for da, 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 da. And we can actually just show you what the best things to do and auto optimize. And by the way, it might be different by demographic. It might be different by geography. It might be different by retailer. And now you're going to have all this data to understand what actually goes on at the shelf. And that, to me, is super exciting. Right. So one thing that we've seen in working with small retailers, especially, is that there's a lot of data coming in. Snowshoe provides some of this data. Companies like Perch provide other data. But sometimes retailers, especially small ones, are not that interested in the data. They feel like they have a kind of hands-on connection to the customer that it matters more to them. So do do you see this shifting? Do Do you see retailers... Uh, beginning to look at the data instead of just trusting their gut? Yeah, I think I think retail for a long time has been treated as an art. And the reality is it's both art and science. And just like anything else, and every other industry has told us like, oh, it's not about the data, it's about the brand, it's about the da-da-da-da-da. Well, like Chanel, especially like Chanel, Gucci, it's very, it's about the brand, it's about the brand. But if you go to their marketing teams, they're absolutely doing A-B testing. They're absolutely doing some of the stuff because they can. And I think there's a resistance to bringing that in store in certain segments. Uh, smaller smaller retailers, like you mentioned, luxury segments, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, you know, data matters, right? And I think you know when you're dealing with a, a Chanel, a Gucci, et cetera, you don't want to A-B test something that you know, you're, you're really not sure about the B test because you're worried about the effect on the brand. Um, you may do some type of test bed on a limited basis online and use that to inform your decisions. But, you know, I think ultimately, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, in God, we trust all else must, everybody else must bring data, right? Uh-huh. I think we are seeing across the board that this notion that I like, like buyers who have to pick up, you know, what are people going to buy 18 months from now? Like that was an art. Now it's increasingly becoming a science, right? And it's going to be data informed and use data to help inform how you choose your art. And I think those that you know resist that uh, will be left behind. And what we're seeing increasingly is that the people who have scale leverage that to get data to make better decisions and offer better things to their clients. And that's why like the breakout successes in retail are Walmart, their Target, their Best Buy, their, you know, these these kind of Home Depot, these people who have scale, who have reach, who are leveraging data, who are able to offer these differentiated things and really create insights based upon that data to better serve their customers. Hmm. Well, so this next question might you might expand on what you just said, Trevor, but you've become such an expert in the world of retail. What changes have you seen in retail? Sorry, I'm going to say that again because I had a very loud loud, uh, truck come by. What changes have you seen in retail during your time at Perch? um, And what trends are happening faster than you expected? 
Um, it's a great question. I, I, I think so much has changed, especially in the last 18 months with COVID. Um, and there's, I think one of the cha- it's one of the changes is just around the value of data and uh, the agility in technology. So COVID forced people to start implementing technology a lot faster than they were comfortable. Um, and so and 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 deploy things that weren't fully baked and all T's crossed and I's dotted. And guess what? Had a huge ROI. And so I think it's really changed the mindset of a lot of people in retail that, you know, we can't be as slow as we have been in the in the past, that that agility matters, that we can put out offerings and test them when they're 80% complete. So that, you know, kind of that agile um, kind of methodology, uh, lean, you know, kind of lean startup kind of methodology actually can work in the retail environment. And so, you know, there's a really big acceleration uh, there. I think the other thing that I that I'm really pleased when I when I came into Perch, everybody was talking about retail apocalypse, this retail apocalypse, that, and like that just hasn't come to be, right? Like you know, physical retailers, retailers with brick and mortar stores, took e-commerce share from Amazon. Forty percent of e-commerce orders are delivered locally by stores, right? Either by buy online, pick up in store, or through store delivery. Stores have become more important over the last year or two than less important, despite you know, all the hoopla around e-commerce. Yeah. And if you look wow. at it, like all the direct-to-consumer uh, 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 retail brands are opening up stores because that's the only way to create profits because online they squeeze, you know, Facebook, Google, they all squeeze all the profits and all the margins out of it and you hit a wall in terms of scale. And so um, I've been really pleased with, you know, I've been saying this for four years and I think over the last year and a half, people are like, wait a second, Stores are actually, you know, if you actually look at year over year, yeah, brick and mortar is gaining market share versus mm-hmm. e-commerce. And so, you know, and everyone's like, whoa, what's going on? I was like, I read my blog post for two years. Right. <laughs> I predicted this. <laughs> oh, it's, it's nice when you get a couple of things right. Absolutely. Well, so Trevor, can you speak to the different shopping behaviors, uh, oh, sorry, say that again. Can you speak to the shopping behaviors changing by generation, um, specifically how are millennials and Gen Z shopping these days and where does the in-store shopping experience intersect with the social media landscape? It's a great question. I, you know, one of the things people are like, oh, millennials and Gen Z, they just like to shop online. Wrong. Yeah. 82% of millennials and 83% of Gen Z prefer to shop in store. Now, if you create a bad shopping experience in store, they will not want to go to your store. So, you know, they want to support their local communities. They, they're actually more cause driven. They're more experience driven overall, and they spend more money on experiences. So if you lean into that, you'll capture more millennial and Gen Z spend. Um, that, that said, I, I think, you know, one of the more interesting trends in retail overall is this notion of social selling. Um, and so, you know, whether, you know, you're, you're looking at Instagram or TikTok and you look at what Shopify is doing to basically allowing anybody with a storefront to be able to push their products onto Instagram, onto TikTok and advertise because that's how Instagram and TikTok make their money off that. Um, you know, that's a really, really big push to integrate the commerce experience within to the social experience because, I mean, you see the numbers, especially during COVID, uh, you know, we're spending an inordinate amount of time on our phones, on social media. Uh, and ultimately, I think the detriment to our health. But that's another um, that's a, that's another podcast. Um, and so, 
you know, I think increasingly people want social validation. And the challenge right now is, you know, I've bought, I think one thing off of Instagram, it was like, a, you know, it was, it was about Christmas time last year. And there was this like little fluttery pink fairy thing that you wind up and then it's, you know, it hovers in the air. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. My niece is going to love this. So I bought it. And it came two weeks later, drop shipped from China. Uh, the packaging was completely crushed. Uh, it was so disappointing. And so then I tried to figure out where I bought it so I could, you know, reach out to them. And uh, it was it was in my feed. Like I, I purchased it it's in my feed. I, I don't. That's it. And so I think one of the things that needs to be solved here is trust. And again, like this is why, you know, a Home Depot, a Target, a Walmart, or or some of these retailers where you have a trust relationship with it, like, like we're, we're struggling right now as a society with decentralization versus trust, right? Whether it's cryptocurrencies, great decentralization. Uh, you can get scammed. You can lose your Bitcoin. We're doing, you know, drug dealing and terror stuff and, and, you know, ransomware based on bitcoin so there's like a good and bad side and on the social shopping side of the house it's good because we get you know in our feeds part of our social we may hopefully get our friends to help validate it but it's bad because you're going to get drop ship broken products from china with very little way to kind of resolve your issues and so i think there are going to be some new interesting models to social selling that mix the retailers trust and nordstrom's doing something with nordstrom live here and bringing content and creating social communities around brands. Um, I think there are a couple going to be a bunch of interesting models that will especially appeal to, to Gen Z and millennial audiences. Got it. Well, we have uh, two more questions. Um, one is if you could predict the future for us, if you could gaze into your crystal ball and look out five to 10 years, where's retail headed? Is it all going to be live streamed? Is it all going to be on camera? What's the future of retail? I, I mean, people people think I'm crazy, but I like it. I, the future of retail is brick and mortar. Believe it or not. Again, it's like people are like, oh, brick and mortar is dying. It's like, okay, if I told you, hey, I'm losing weight. And you said, Trevor, how much are you losing? Oh, I'm gaining two pounds every year. You'd be like, Trevor, you're crazy. It's like brick and mortar is dying. Really, it's gaining 2% every year. Like, it's just, you know, it, look, there's. I think of e-commerce as a buying layer. Like, think of it as completing a transaction, right? And brick and mortar is like a shopping layer where I can discover products, I can touch them, I can feel them, I can choose how I decide what to buy. Now, these are increasingly it's going to be unhelpful to separate e-commerce and brick and mortar because I'm going to go into e-commerce, buy something to pick it up at brick and mortar. I'm going to go to brick and mortar, discover a product like Bonobos, right? Like you go to Bonobos, you discover the product you like, you buy it online, it gets shipped to your, to your house. You never actually have an inventory in the store. These models are going to blend. And I think you talk about five to 10 years from now, like one of the things that's really interesting is like, what happens when you have 15 minute delivery? Like imagine going to the grocery store and instead of having lots of products on all the shelves, you know, with lot, lots of inventory, right? You have one of each product on the shelf and you're like, ah, I need Tide Pods. Great. I need some Old Spice. Da, 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 da. You add it all into your cart, you click buy, and then you, you head to your car. And by the time you get home, the delivery people have beat you there, right? Like those are some of the models that are going to start blending these, these, this, this concept of discovery and buying together in these new and interesting ways. And then you don't have to lug your, you know, groceries into your car and dot, 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 dot. The only thing there is 
you will pay a premium for that. That stuff will not be free. And so if you actually look, for example, on the grocery side of the house, like online grocery has declined 30% in the, since, since, since March of this year. Let me say that again, right? Like online's, online's, online's killing it. It's stealing Rick and mortar. It's down 30% since, since March, right? Because it costs, you know, seven bucks to, to deliver it. And people, you know, don't want to pay seven bucks and they want that discovery in store anyway. And so, you know, I think the best models will start marrying the best of discovery, the best of commerce, leaning into there's a lot of buy now, pay later type stuff. I think retailers are increasingly going to become financial institutions. That was one of my mm-hmm. 2021 retail pr- projections. And you're seeing people adopting, you know, Bitcoin payments, buy now, pay later, loyalty, all kinds of things. And 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 retailers are going to stick their hooks into you from a loyalty perspective. I think the other thing, you know, big thing is going to be private label brands. So one of the challenges is, for retailers is, okay, you're the, this, this discovery layer and I decide, okay, great. I want to, I, I discovered that I want, you know, Purina dog chow. Great. But next time, am I going to buy it necessarily from the retailer? Because I can buy it from anywhere after that point, once I've discovered it. So what brands, what retailers are doing is saying like, hey, we need our own brands so that people have to come back to Target. So for example, Target is launching their own private label pet brand called Kindful. And like that's going to be a billion dollar brand in the next six months. That's huge. And by the way, I think they have 10 billion dollar brands, private label brands, and five that are 2 billion or above. Target is this amazing platform for driving customer loyalty and then incubating private label brands on top of it. And so, you know, the brands are launching their own stores because they need to own the relationship. The, 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 the retailers are open, are, are doing their brands because they need to own the relationship. And here's, here's the crazy one. What about Instacart? Right. If you allow Instacart to do delivery, ultimately people start shopping on Instacart. And guess what happens? Instacart is going to say, Oh, You've got carrots, orange juice, and milk. I'm going to get the carrots from Target, the orange juice from Walmart, and the milk from Kroger's. And I'm just going to mix it all together. I'm going to save you five bucks. And all of a sudden, all that retailer loyalty is going to go away. And oh, by the way, the year after that, they're going to have their own micro-fulfillment center, and it's going to be delivered by Instacart. And all of a sudden, Instacart owns the customer, the distribution, and the fulfillment. And this vertical integration um, is going to be interesting. And at the same time, while we're seeing vertical integration, we're also seeing like modularization, right? So Walmart is offering their delivery service to third-party retailers because they've got stores within 95% of Americans uh, within like five or 10 miles. So they have their own delivery store networks and they're going to offer it to other retailers. You're going to have people offer delivery services, marketing services, marketplaces online. And so it's going to be this interesting thing where you can get your you know, inventory from Amazon, your delivery from Walmart, your, your, your payments from Klarna and all, and all these different pieces. And you can build a whole retail engine from all third party services, launch it, scale it to hundreds of millions of dollars without actually having to build much yourself. And then you're going to have to try and compete with people who want all an old stack. And so it's going to be fascinating to see what happens over the next five to 10 years. Well, we're going to revisit this episode in five and 10 years and see how accurate you are. (laughs) Uh, We do have one last question for you, Trevor, which is what is your personal mission and what do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, I, you know, uh, 
this is always a hard one because I feel like, you know, how do you encapsulate something in a personal mission? I always envy people of a very like specific personal mission. And I've worked in retail. I've worked in social media, online media, e-commerce. And ultimately what drives me and what I, I, I like to create transformative technologies with amazing people um, and work on hard problems and surprise people by what we are capable of doing. I like being the underdog and transforming an industry. And I, I, I think to me, you know, the mission is, you know, I, I'm interested in lots of different things. So like, you know, uh, next five years, you know, I w- will certainly be kind of more retail focused. Who knows what happens, you know, 10 years from now. Um, but I know I'll be working with great people doing kind of working on great challenges. And I think ultimately, when I look at what has given me the greatest satisfaction, it has been creating these high performing organizations, mentoring people and accelerating them in careers. And ultimately, it's like, how many people do you touch, right? And I think of, like, you know, when I think about what I'm most proud of at my last company, which I I founded local Vox, you know, Yes, it's the growing to 100 people, selling to the Blackstone Group, having that success. But the things that really give me kind of like that warmth in the heart type of pride are specific people who I got to work with and I've seen them accelerate their careers and now they're doing really meaningful work. And, you know, I think, you know, the social mission can be your, you know, career network and the people that you touch in just working with them. And it's less about the problem set and and sometimes more about the people. Great. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Ned. Thank you, Ashley. This was great. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening today to the Spark Plug Podcast and brought to you by Snowshoe, snow.sh for smarter mobile location. Spark Plug is a wholly owned property of Snowshoe. All content, copyright, 2021, Spark Plug Media.